Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. We talked in the last session about giving people a hope through hearing and believing the gospel, very strictly speaking. We're talking in this session about something that we said is a little indirect, or it's an outflow, or it's a product of the gospel, and that is a home. So if you want to think about it this way, you can think about giving people hope as shining a very bright light into life, and then the home is the place to which the light guides them. There are some ways in which this is one of the best times to proclaim the gospel because so many people experience on a daily basis so much hopelessness that the need for some kind of hope is brighter or clearer in their lives, even if they don't know what it would be. Or to say it this way, that the darkness is much darker in many people's lives, maybe than ever before, so that a light, however faint, would seem very, very bright to them. But when we talk about a home, we're talking about somewhere for them to go, somewhere for them to belong. Because not everything about Christianity is only about believing. There are also many things about the Christian faith that are about belonging. Christians, for example, don't get evangelized and believe and then just sit there. They always get gathered into a congregation, a local congregation. And that place has certain people and not others with certain personalities and lives and not others. So when they get gathered in, they're gathered somewhere particular. So what do we mean in giving people a home, somewhere particular to belong? And we'll talk about why we want to do this, building off some of the stuff we said in the first session about homelessness, and then we'll talk about how. This image of home is not only one that you hear Jesus talking about in John's gospel when he says that he has prepared a place and that his father's house has many rooms, ample space. It's the home version of life abundantly. We have somewhere for everyone to stay. When he's talking about the kingdom of God, you will remember that he talks about it once as something that begins very small, like a mustard seed. But that when it grows up, there is room for all the birds of the air to come in. Birds of the air is a phrase from all the way back in Genesis 1. And they're particularly mysterious in the Bible, birds, because who knows where they go to, right? They don't have nice atlases laying out what the migration pattern of the bird was. The bird goes and comes back and then other birds appear. They're a little mysterious if you don't have atlases or the Audubon Society to tell you what happened to all of them. So you'll find that in the Bible, birds will often be a sign of God's mysteriousness, his provision for them, right? The two sparrows, but also mysterious evil in the case of the birds that snatch seed and mysterious abundance in the kingdom that has room for all of them to come at the same time. A place. They actually belong there. Now, we don't often think about churches this way because we might think too much in terms of numbers and not in terms of names. The pastor might be thinking in terms of names. You might recognize that the person is missing from his customary pew. 
but more often we think in terms of numbers. And especially when we think in terms of the broad church, not the local congregation where you have a home, but the broad church where you don't really have a home. You're not a member of every single church everywhere at the same time. We almost always talk about that church in terms of numbers. How many churches are in this county? How many people go to church? How many people used to go to church? How many people joined a church in the past year? How many baptisms did the Southern Baptists have in the last year? That number has been going down, down, down. How big was the Missouri Synod in 1974 and how big is it today? Numbers. When we usually care most about people, we don't use numbers. Very rarely does anybody stand up at the lunch after the funeral and talk about numbers. And if they do, it would be kind of weird. Do you know how much my dad made in 1989? Doesn't matter. The numbers don't matter. When we actually care about people, we use names like family members do. You could go to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in D.C., and there would not be many numbers, maybe units. But the real thing that matters is that the name is there. And the name might not mean anything to you in the same way that the name of a member of a completely different church is unknown to you, but it means something to the person who went there looking for the name. And that's part of what it is to have a home. You don't need to be able to walk into any house anywhere and have everybody say, hey, great to see you. It's not a generic friendliness. That's not what home is. It's a place where you are known and so you belong. You don't have a key to every house. You have a key to your house. Now, in terms of some of the questions that we had after the last session, that anticipated something that I was already ready to say to you about home in this session, which is that I think sometimes Christians overdo the fact that we don't have what Hebrews calls a continuing city, a continuing city. We have here no continuing city. We don't have something, whether the town that we live in or the building that was built for our family to live in or the church building, which is our congregation's second building or first or fourth, that's going to last forever. And that's true. And the building is not the church. And that's true. Sure. There will be a time when it will all pass away. So we have a home that we're on the way to. That's why long before John Bunyan, people were describing the Christian life as a pilgrimage. You are somewhere and you are going somewhere else as well. You're in the wilderness. You're going to the promised land. You're on your way. True. There is also an aspect, however, of life in Christ, which means that you are at home if only temporarily, in that building with those people now. And when we forget that, we are forgetting something that the person who is new to it cannot possibly forget. This makes evangelism much harder because we are unable to see how much we have been given. Now, some of it for the new person is going to be weird. What is an introit? What is a synod? I don't know. Is it the same thing as a synod? And what is that? So some of it is going to be strange but what we do when we think of home as always somewhere else is that we fail to see 
how much at home we already are. And I'm not saying this today in a negative way, the way often when people talk about evangelism, they do. The reason that a lot of churches don't look like churches on the inside is because somebody told them if it looks too much like a home people have lived in for too long, nobody new will want to come. Now, strangely, the people who live, who are at home, as it were, inside churches that don't look like churches, want to get married, to have their weddings, in my church that looks like a church. Why is that? Because on some level, it feels more like a home, especially for one of the most important days of your life, than the church that they actually belong to. There is an aspect of being at home in which the church sells itself very much short, doesn't even understand what it has, and so gives away too easily. When someone is coming into that, is he going to be uncomfortable in the same way that you were the first time you went to your in-law's house for dinner? The answer is yes. Did that deter you from getting married because you didn't know that this is what they do between four and five, and then this is when they eat, and that they like to put pepper on their cottage cheese, and you find that's weird? Did that stop you from marrying your spouse? No. The reason churches are particular or unusual or not entirely explicable to the outsider right away is because they are actually home. If they were somewhere that anybody could be, like an airport, then they would look and feel very different. Yeah, there are negative aspects to its being somebody else's home and my not really belonging there. But if I actually stick around to belong, I stay in the marriage or I stay in the congregation, then it will seem more like home with time. And it will teach me certain virtues and lessons I will never know if I treat the world like it's supposed to be one big airport. Here's the irony. If we make churches less like homes and more like anywhere, anyone could be, anytime, we will not give anyone a solution to his homelessness. He will find no home. He will remain impatient and estranged. Because here's what else it does when the church is actually a home and not just a building. It is a building and not just the people, although it really is, strictly speaking, the people, is that that home for that congregation sustains the homes where each of the people in the congregation live. Probably the biggest reason that we are experiencing a homelessness of the soul is because of the nature and the decay of our own families. I don't know how to belong because my family doesn't even know how to belong to each other. I don't know how to interact with people because my family doesn't even interact with each other. I don't know how to reasonably disagree with somebody or disagree and get over it or whatever because my family never does anything like that. When Luther's talking about the fourth commandment, the family, and the large catechism, he's very clear about this, that that's where you learn both the stuff of the first table of the law and the second probably best, or you don't learn it at all. Why didn't you grow up going to church? Well, because your parents didn't take you. Why did you grow up going to church? Because your parents took you. There are exceptions to all these things, but they are just that exceptions. If the church is a home, then it is also able to sustain the homes of God's people. If the church is something that anyone could belong to, low expectations, low comfort, 
designed for just anybody to walk in and immediately know everything that's going on makes it really hard to fit into the family's own life. Because even if your church is just like an airport, the home where that family and that family and that family live, and this lady lives by herself, but her life is still governed by the patterns that were set by her husband who died five years ago, those families will not stop having homes, functional or dysfunctional, just because your church doesn't act like it's a home for anybody. And we'll make clear as we talk about the why, what that means, both in terms of its doctrine and in terms of its life. But if your church doesn't act like a home for anybody, it's not going to be useful in sustaining the homes that the people are going to live in regardless, whether they go to your church or believe anything or not. Part of the reason that churches repeat things is that that ends up slotting into people's lives because that's how people live. They don't do something new every day, much less every Sunday. They do kind of the same stuff kind of all the time, and that's the way they like it. And their kids don't like it, and then they leave and then end up doing those same things or realizing that they miss when dad coughs like that before he has something to say. They think about those sounds and those repeated things. That's what it means to be home. So let's talk about why. And just like in the last hour, we could pick lots of reasons, but we picked two for the sake of clarity and brevity. And the why here is similar to the why of people, that argument from desire, we reference people's need to be satisfied only in God, is that their life in our country, in our time, makes them spiritually homeless. Life in our country, in our time, makes them spiritually homeless. Sometimes this is very literal, like everything in their life is supposed to lead up to the point where they move way away from their family for a certain amount of money. But it's also, when it's not literally way far away, you're never coming back home. When it's not that, it is that what their parents believe or what their grandparents believe or what their great-grandparents believed is because it was old and of old time ways and taught by people who were probably bad human beings since they lived in the past and didn't have the advantage of being modern like we are, is wrong and shameful. So that everything that connects them to anything that isn't right here, right now, that's bad. And you should get rid of it. Because those people didn't know what they were doing. And they had never been able to celebrate a trans day of visibility. And that was bad. So they are cut off from everything. They don't know where they came from. They don't know why they're here. And they don't know where they're going. That's kind of the same as when you talk to a literally homeless person. They have been scrambled, generally by drug use. They don't exactly know where they were six months ago. They don't exactly know why they're in this city and not in another city that offers the same welfare benefits. Maybe more. Portland is better to be homeless in than Denver, but Denver is a lot better than Chicago because our winter is much nicer. And they don't know where they're going to go because it doesn't very much matter. You take that literal homelessness, you map it onto the soul of many people, including many of our kids and grandkids, and you know how it stands with them. And they have been pushed there by the way they were educated. They were pushed there by the way that they were taught to think about their past and their parents and to mock their parents. And all of that creates a sense of, I don't know who I am or where I'm going or where I came from. 
And that has a high cost in anybody's life. It doesn't mean that if you had an answer to any of those things, you would have to think that it was all wonderful. Read a single genealogy in the Bible and find me just wonderful people, all of them. Even if you just look at Jesus' own genealogies and know some of these names, it's not a story of absolutely wonderful people, but it is a story of where he came from and who he is. In fact, who he is, son of David, is recognized by where he came from. He's not homeless. He knows his own. They don't always receive him, but he knows them. In addition to that, and this is one of my chief concerns under why, this is maybe the biggest of the four whys that I've given you, just because it comes up over and over and over again in practice. Um, I had a pastor ask me uh, this question this way. He said that people did not seem to be interested in some of the things that he was prepared to talk about, but they had questions about things he was not prepared to talk about. So they didn't necessarily have questions framed in terms of the Lutheran Book of Concord. I mean, I'm not saying this to be, I'm not being facetious. I'm not mocking anything, right? But the, the terms that he had for talking about, say, guilt, okay, sure, he knows how to talk about that. But then the questions that they had are the things that were ripping apart their lives generally did not concern necessarily that somebody felt really guilty. That happens. It does. But that much more often, and I'd say this is also my experience, their questions were things about like, well, what do I, how do I handle having a family and trying to keep them Christian? Because lots of things are trying to make them not Christians. So I, I would like them to be Christians. So what can we do about that? So it's this, that if we don't really offer, this was kind of my answer to him, if we don't offer a biblical response to the things that are making people spiritually homeless, we don't deserve their attention. If we do not answer the questions and the difficulties that God's people are having, which in our place and time largely concern the family and creation, am I supposed to be a girl if I was born a girl or can I switch? If we don't answer those questions, then we don't deserve attention. They don't need to listen to us. They'll listen to somebody else that's offering some kind of non-biblical solution, right? But we don't deserve their attention. We don't deserve to invite somebody into our home if we're not going to feed them. Say it that way, okay? If you're not going to be hospitable by serving them the word of God, don't invite them. There's nothing to invite them to. They're going to sit there and starve, right? So among the wise, I think that has the greatest urgency for the church because it means that the church simply needs to speak to the things, like we said earlier, Paul does in 1 Corinthians, that are actually going on with people. Not only the things that we were ready to talk about, but also the things that perhaps are harder to figure out or we were less ready to explain. talk a little bit about how. Okay. And I left a little more time for this how, because there are more of them because home concerns the church's life or the church's practice. So there's kind of more to say because it's not just, you need to get the message out as with hope. So with home, we start here that we have clarity in our message, clarity. I know what you're talking about and I understand what it means. Unfortunately, what I just said has sometimes been interpreted. I don't mean people listening to me. I mean like people sort of saying the same thing at other times and places has been interpreted as we need to make our message dumber. 
We need to make our message dumber, like love God, love people. That's it. Love God, love people. How many churches have that on a sign, on a mission statement? Love God, love people. That's it. What did people do with that message? Well, they used it to shut off everything else. Okay? So I have also heard people say, well, what is the church supposed to do about, uh, and they always adopt the world's terminology. It's very telling, LGBTQ plus people. Well, you know, we're just supposed to love God and love people. So, so don't confront them. Don't give them any instruction. Don't help them. Don't ask them if anything happened to them when they were children that has caused trauma in their life. Don't do any of that. Don't apply the word of God. Just love God, love people. So what happens when we dumb down our message, we try to be dumber than the Bible wants to make us, is that we end up with an unclear message at the very time that we were trying to be clear. So clarity doesn't mean dumb, it means biblical. Because you'll notice that the Bible will not only shape what you know, it will also shape how you say it. You'll be able to use simple pictures like Jesus does for the nature of the kingdom. Or you'll be able to talk about life and death the way John does. So I'm saying part of our despair that we referenced in the first session is because we don't know the scriptures. So of course we are unequipped and we know it. And we're therefore unable to be clear. So clarity in our message means biblical and consistently so. Number two is your excuse to be boring because it's stability in life. This is, kids call things boring <clears throat> because they're used to being overstimulated. So they think a lot of things are boring. This is boring. That's boring. Then you get old enough and things that you thought were boring, you like look forward to and you, you plan for. I want to just drink coffee and stare out the window for 20 minutes, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's boring, but it's also amazing, right? Is that churches are not, they're, they're boring if you're immature. They are stable if you are mature in Christ. They need to be stable. I mean this to pertain to the service, but I mean it to pertain to many other things that the church's life should be stable. What that means is that you know what things are going to be. It's hard, Here's my reason for it. It's really hard to develop loyalty in somebody if they don't know what something is going to be. My parents are from Western Pennsylvania. I was born in Pittsburgh. If I ever, and I can hear the accent when someone opens his mouth, Probably I'm the only one with those vowels in this room. If there's another one of you from Western Pennsylvania and I say black and gold, we know what we're talking about, okay? Because it's stable. Because if it's a good team, like the Steelers, they never change their logo. Did you ever notice that? New York Yankees, same uniform as 100 years ago because it's a good team. When you're always changing things, and this usually is most noticeable for the people in the service, but I'm saying it also applies to how we deal with each other, when we have voters meetings, how we run these things. Stability is a very great value in creating a home. Kids will tell you this if they're able to more than anybody else because they thrive on it. And the thing that I've learned in having children is not that I'm very different from them. I'm just less honest or self-aware than they are. So children know that they need stability, so they just get openly upset when it's past their bedtime. Adults hide it. Or children know that they need to eat. Adults hide it. Okay? Adults also need stability. That when they know what they're going to get and they know how they're going to get it, it's wonderful. People are very confused by any difference whatsoever, so I try to minimize differences, okay? 
Um, even the things that are different, a lot of people move to Denver, Colorado from somewhere else. It's the things that are different from their home church that they notice first. It may be good. It may be bad. It may be totally indifferent. It really doesn't matter. We have coffee made in a certain way, but they notice. So when there's stability, it makes it that much easier for you to come home. Something you may have noticed is that even as we have developed a whole part of American Christianity devoted to novelty, especially in non-denominational churches, everything's always new. Everything is produced in a new way. That has not made a dent at all in the overall trend of fewer and fewer and fewer Christians. More of them have collected into non-denominational churches, but it has not affected the fact that there are fewer and fewer Christians, which is our concern. We don't need to collect them all into five really great churches. We want everyone to go to some church, however small. So novelty is not really the solution for homeless people. A stable place that feeds them well day after day after day is the solution to homelessness. We also want to provide strength for families. So as far as the how goes, what I mean by that is particularly that we do what the small catechism of Martin Luther is already set up to do. These are usually not kind of handled, I think, as frequently, but did you ever think about two things about the small catechism? One is there are instructions about how it should be taught at the beginning of each section. Those instructions concern the family. The assumption is that the small catechism is not intended just to be used in church or in a specific part of church, the confirmation class, but that the teaching concerning Jesus Christ and his grace and the sacraments and the law of God and all of it is intended to be used and discussed inside the family. So there's a setting for the catechism. Not only is there a setting within the life you already have for Christian doctrine, but also that those things, as they are repeated year after year after year, also prepare you for life. As the Ten Commandments do, as the creed does, as prayer does, as the sacraments do, but also a section that we sometimes don't even talk about, the table of duties, which is a set of Bible passages. See how you need to be clear? A set of Bible passages about life, about different facets of life so that in your life you could know, okay, I'm in a family. What do I do? I work for a guy. What do I do? I'm under a government. What do I do? I'm in a church. What do I do? It's all there. And it's about life, the life you already have, but now you have clear instruction for it. So that in providing people a home and giving them a stable diet of biblical doctrine, you're also providing strength and clarity, not just in the church, but also for the daily life of God's people outside the church building. And here's the last one. And this is the one that um, probably comes up most frequently in my, so in the same way that the second why about giving people answers they're actually looking for comes up frequently. Here's the one that comes up most frequently in my experience. And it is a desire for wisdom, a desire for wisdom. Wisdom meaning not just that you know something is true, but that you also know how to as in Proverbs, carry it out. Or it's sometimes called, when the Greeks talk about it, Jesus uses the same word to talk about it in the Gospels, that you have practical wisdom. Two different words in Greek, wisdom, practical wisdom. We're talking often when we're talking about Proverbs or we're talking about the guy that knows he's going to get fired, so he cuts the bills in half of everybody that could hire him after he gets fired. And maybe that confuses you guys, but Jesus is just saying, if you know what the future is going to be, you should act like it. Okay. Dishonest manager. He's practically wise. It's a different word in Greek from wisdom, wisdom. Is that people are sorely lacking in and sorely questioning about what to do. 
I referenced this earlier when I talked about prayer, but it's not just prayer. It's like relating to other human beings. Because part of their homelessness is that in their own families, or you could say maybe they didn't have much of a family, let's say in their upbringing, is that they didn't learn any of that. None of that was clear. Or everybody around them has just been taking advantage advantage of each other their whole lives. So now they know they're not supposed to do that, but they don't know how to not do that because that's how they know how to relate to other people. What are you going to do for me? Or how can I get something out of you? So that the need for the homeless, let's say, what have their souls been lacking? It seems most of all, this is certainly the most frequent question, most frequent wondering that I hear from people is a desire for wisdom. What do I do? How do I carry on? And in this regard, this is something where I think the church really has no concept of its own gifts, is that you could go into a room and you say, well, our church is going to die soon because our average age is 72. Well, do you know what is also in that room where the average age is 72? A lot of life. And to act like that's nothing or that's nothing to give to somebody else is to despise God's gifts. A lot of life has been lived by the people in that room. They have a lot to give. So we want to make it as we bring people into it, a home. I came into a church the woman who is now my wife and I were the only people of any age to get married and have children in that room. It was an old church. I learned a lot. So this is not just wisdom that could be offered. Let's say maybe the pastor should read Proverbs a little bit more and find out the range of things that God's word addresses. But also this is for everybody to say, what do I have to give to somebody who needs it because there is a lot of need by people who have never really had a home before and might want to start one of their own and could learn from someone in the church or need their home to be blessed or changed by God's word for which the church, all God's people may have a lot of wisdom. Don't sell yourself short because you are inviting people not only to have hope through Jesus Christ, but also in his body to find home. Let's do questions. Let's do comments, whatever you guys want to talk about. Thank you. Okay. Where do we start examining our own failures with our own children? So you, you reference, especially like you know, the joke about the rabbits in the pastor's garden so he confirms them and then they go away and never come back. That's the dark confirmation joke, right? <laughs> Did you guys know that joke? You can, pastor can get, he can get, he can exterminate anything you have simply by confirming it. So you got termites, you got rabbits in your garden, whatever, just have the pastor confirm them. They'll never come back. Right. Okay. Dark confirmation joke. Some of you were ready for it. Some of you were not. It's fine. I'm going home, so I don't have to worry about it, right? Um, is that this is, this is the flip side. And I didn't do this because I wanted to be encouraging today. If I were coming to your church council meeting, I would balance it a little bit more with negative stuff that is necessary for anybody, right? So whenever I preach, I, am, I try to be my own most brutal critic. And that's not to run in front of somebody who's like, I didn't like what you said today. It's so that I, I find I can't improve unless I am brutal with myself. So for your own part, um, if a congregation is thinking through, like, so let's say you're thinking about confirmation. Do we want to keep doing confirmation the way we're doing it? Because it doesn't seem to be working, right? Like, those kids largely leave. So if I have a, if I'm running a program where the attrition rate is like 96%, 96% of my people flunk out of my program. I'm just saying like, 
you might want to think about it. Like, right? And so you have to start, you have to start by being honest with yourself. You cannot assume that anything that you're doing is actually good unless it has been borne out by by obviously the Bible. And then also, because we're not talking in many cases about the Bible doesn't outline how many years should you teach kids. It doesn't say you should teach them three years and then they can take communion. Or you should teach them two years and then they can take... It doesn't say... Any, so you're talking about matters of wisdom. So experience is really important here in matters of wisdom. So is there a way that we can figure that we would actually keep more of our kids? Because, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but if we had kept half the kids that we've confirmed since the 1970s when our denomination plateaued and has been going down since then, if we kept half those kids, I mean, we would, we'd be like huge but we don't keep them. And that's just the fact. So if you're doing something and it's not working, you can't be like, well, I think I'll keep doing it. That's, I mean, that's just like, that's crazy. You know, like I've been demanding to get on airplanes without buying a ticket and it's never worked, but I think I'm going to keep doing it. Maybe I'll get home today. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yes, sir. You have the mic. How do you handle when those who are in the home themselves aren't treating it as a home. Do you mean metaphorically in the church or, or, or also literally? Okay. Um, with a family, when people are not treating the home as a home, um, like I think this is sometimes a deficit when we do premarital counseling is that I think we focus a lot on the emotional interplay between the husband to be and the wife to be, and that's fine. Um, but a lot of stuff that they will end up having bad emotional interplay over actually concerns the way that they live in a space or what they think should be there or how big they think it should be. Um, and we don't talk about, you know, for instance, like figuring out how to have breakfast together or um, how to have time um, or a space that is quiet in the home instead of dominated by the TV, for example. Because the TV also makes the home kind of weird because the loudest voice in the room, probably in the, li in the living room, so you're doing living there together, but then you have the TV and then you also have your phone, which is probably silent, but is a separate set of images. So this has to do with figuring out in wisdom what would allow the home to have its own integrity, which largely isn't about emotions. It's really about rhythms and practices. Like, are we going to let the TV talk or are we going to talk? Or are we going to be on our phones or are we going to be with each other? Or these, I mean, you have to do it like explicitly at this point. And this is kind of, this is part of the don't know how to be stuff is that if the kid grew up with the TV blaring and at this point, if they're getting married in their, in their 20s, they've always had smartphones or the smartphones have always been in the family, then that is a whole set of interruptions that you kind of have to explicitly say, you can't do this. You're never even going to know each other. Um, let a, right? But they don't know any different. So they kind of have to be intentional about stuff that we didn't used to have to be intentional about. And I'd say the same thing goes for the church. Although honestly churches have usually been a lot less disrupted by technology than, than homes have been. Like churches tend to change more. I mean, pastors, you know, the vestments that the pastor is wearing are street clothing from the Roman empire. Like that's how fast churches change, right? So the pastor's still like, hello, I'm here. I'm here from the Roman empire. Like that was a while ago, right? Um, churches don't change nearly as fast as families change. So the danger is actually, I think, more in the home than in the house of God, although it, it happens too. Right. So if, if adults behave, I'm just summarizing, it's kind of, he, he had a good point rather than, than a question. If adults behave like it's an obligation to be fulfilled, why, would, why are we putting so much weight on the kids to act like it's not just an obligation to be fulfilled? So if the, the, the adults obviously 
just kind of leave as soon as they possibly can, even if they came to church, right? Apart from the family all acts like you do confirmation and then you're done. Why would the kids behave differently? Kids learn much more powerfully from your example than from what you tell them. I mean, that's, that's the humility every pastor should have. Like, yes, you are absolutely brilliant and no one has ever preached as amazingly as you do. But the example of the kid's dad is much more important than anything that you're going to tell them in confirmation class, as important as that is. It's just, and it's just the way people are built. You know, that's, we got to work with the material we have. People find life much more powerful than words. Yeah. Yeah. So with, uh, with teaching the faith, we're usually giving the church a very cold start, right? So think about if you, for some reason, needed to mow your grass in the middle of the dead of winter. It's been really cold. It's hard to get the engine started. That's, I mean, that, that's where we put not just a pastor in confirmation class, but kind of the church with her own young, generally by doing nothing in the home. Is that you, you give everything a cold start. And we, we don't do, I mean, we don't do that with sports. Not just playing sports, but like sports fandom, you know? I mean, I, my kids know, not my my own children are expected to carry on the family legacy of Pittsburgh sports, right? But um, that's just that's where we are, you know. But but the kids in my congregation, if I, I I know that if I make a reference to a second baseman, they know what that is. I want to have the same ability to reference um, the second article, and they know what that is. Not even if they know the explanation by heart, that's optimal. That's what I, that's what I'm trying to do. But that I say second article, or I say, I say the words of institution or whatever, just church vocabulary, and then know what that is. And none of that is very hard, and it's not even nearly as many hours a week as the kids spend thinking or some of them playing sports. So it's not that hard. But if you're if you're asking the church to always do a cold start, of course, retention. Is that much harder because you're trying to get the kid to care about something for a couple years? He didn't have to care before and he doesn't have to care after. That's just going to be hard. So if the kid, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if he's if he's able to think about life in terms of the small catechism, that makes it easier. Like if if we said over and over and over again, the Lord's Prayer is ordered the way it is, so that you can figure out how to order what you're supposed to care about. Because most of the stuff that you care about all slots into the fourth petition. And there's a lot of other things that you should be praying about. Yeah. Make him familiar. Yeah. So it feels at least as real as UFC fighting does. Uh, that's, that's when the guys just like beat each other up and kick each other. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are kids that go to church with you who could tell you a lot more than I can. Yeah. Guaranteed. <laughs> they know about it. They know about it. They know about it. Yeah. What she said was about, you can't expect your kids, if you're not subjecting your own life to the Bible, to live their lives according to the Bible. This is true. So let's be clear about what the Bible means by hypocrite, because this is the objection that comes up as they say, well, not nobody does exactly what he says other pe his kids should do. True. Okay. When Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites, he means that they are pretending to be somebody they are not, right? So they're pretending to be men of God. They instead teach the traditions of men instead of the commandments of God. So they're pretending to be somebody they are not. If I say I am a sinner and I am subjecting my life both for the sake of God's direction and his grace to the word of God, I'm not pretending to be somebody I'm not, right? Like if I'm going to church because I'm a sinner and I tell my kids, you have to go to church, I'm not asking them to do something I don't do myself, okay? That's not, it's not hypocrisy for there to be a gap 
between who you're supposed to be and who you're teaching them to be because Christianity, of all things, handles in the message of forgiveness the gap between who you're supposed to be and who you actually are. Okay? And that's really important to say because people are afraid. Um, I wrote a lot about this one time. They're very afraid to say what Paul says to new Christians, which is imitate me. They're very afraid to say that. They think it would be prideful to say that. It's not prideful. Imitate me in going to church because you're a sinner. Imitate me in reading the Bible because you don't know what you're doing without God's help. Imitate me in living a Christian life because God is directing us toward heaven. Okay? That's not prideful to say that. Okay? And Paul says it to people and even says, Timothy's better at this than you are. So I'm going to send Timothy to you, 1 Corinthians 4, so that you can figure out what you need to be doing. Right? So if I want to know how to conduct the service, you ask Pastor Broughton. You don't ask me. I'm naturally sloppy. He knows what he's doing. Imitate him. You know what I'm saying? So people are, they, if they're doing the right thing, it's not prideful to say, do what I'm doing. I mean, it's how I teach my boys to throw a baseball. Just watch me and then you try it and then, and then eventually you won't like push it like they do naturally, right? Spending too much time outside the home. So does, does homeschooling or mothers working at home, does that, does that compensate for it? Um, it could, but if dad is gone all the time too, then it doesn't. Um, and the issue here is more like that the home is supposed to be the center of gravity for a person's life. Even if, I mean, even if, you don't have kids in the home or you are in a home by yourself. If you are always gone, then the home turns, however many or few people you have in it, the home just turns into kind of a bunk. And that's not really good for anybody. So obviously, this is going to be more or less noticeable if you have a lot of people who need attention who are not getting it. Okay. But I think it's true, even if you have a home of one, that the home becomes kind of like a bunk um, rather than a place that you belong. So you really don't want this in any family that the home turns into, but it already is in many families, inside and outside the church, that the home is just kind of like a stopping place or it's like a, it's like an airport or it's like a train station and that... There could be plenty of people around, but they have little to nothing to do with each other. Yeah. Okay. Um, other things? Anybody else? Are we okay on time? I guess we're actually past time. So I'll give the mic back to Pastor Broughton. Thank you so much. <laughs>